until modern times, most Christians assume Noah's flood referred to an actual worldwide event that happened in a relatively recent past. However, discoveries of modern science, as well as an explosion of new knowledge about the ancient world of the Bible, has decisively challenged whether this interpretation is the best reading of the text. This includes the work of many Christian scholars and scientists who were and continue to be guided by a belief that all truth is God's truth, and that Scripture is inspired, and that the testimony of God's creation should not be ignored. Catch this last sentence. The scientific and historical evidence is now clear. There has never been a global flood that covered the entire earth, nor do all modern animals and humans descend from the passengers of a single vessel. Church, that statement burdens me. It actually infuriates me. You see, that statement was not made by a professor at a secular liberal arts college. That is not a quote from a science textbook written by an atheist. No, this is a statement made by a Christian organization defending the scriptures with evolution. And that infuriates me. The organization is, goes by the name of BioLogos. You can find them on the web. I read, I read through some of their scriptural statements of, of beliefs, and the first few points I agreed with, and that was about where it ended. They are evolution creationists, attempting to merge the truths of God's word with the supposed belief of millions of years. And this has been backed by scientists, by pastors, by theologians, this is what's being preached in the pulpits of America. This is what's being taught as truth to, in our Christian schools. And this really makes me angry. Let's look at this. Modern science. So now we have come to a point where science has taken a position of authority over the written word of God. New knowledge. That means we discovered something new that therefore makes everything else we knew before wrong. Interpretation. So now the Bible needs to be interpreted. It no longer can be taken at face value. No, we need to interpret it by scientists and theologians. And finally, if you're going to make the point that Scripture is inspired, if you believe that the word that you hold in your hands is literally God-breathed, then all supposed historical and scientific ev evidence that does not align with the Word of God needs to be thrown out. You cannot make those two statements as fact. This morning, I want us to look afresh on Noah's flood. I want us to see the truths. I want us to see the promises so that our strength is invigorated and we can grow. And we're going to begin very upfront with the authority of the Word of God 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all scripture is God, is inspired by God. In other words, God breathed all of scripture is given by inspiration. It's profitable for what? Doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. The Bible is absolute. It is not lacking any facts. The Bible is inerrant. It is incapable of being wrong. And to quote Jesus himself, my words will not pass away. It is everlasting. That is the Bible. And I want to make it very clear up front that the Bible does not need science to explain it. This sermon is not an attempt to defend the Bible. No, the Bible is clear with what it says. And that is truth.
No, the Bible does not even need interpretation. It does not need theologians to interpret the Bible to fit a certain worldview. The Bible is absolute truth. And we're going to begin there. Genesis is, is foundational to all that we believe. Genesis 1 through 11. All right? It's the basis of everything we have. In the first verse, we learn that God created heaven and earth. We know that there's one God and we know what he did. He created heaven and earth. All right, we have God's plan for gender. God made humans. He made male. He made female. We have God's plan for indoctrination of marriage, defined as one man, one woman for life. We also have the doctrine of sin, and because that doctrine of sin, in Genesis 3, we had the promise for a Messiah. Genesis is so foundational to everything we have. And you see, if you start removing your foundation, you start pulling creation out and you put evolution in, if you start pulling out the doctrine of genders and start putting in multiple genders or bi-genders, you substitute the biblical view of marriage for the secular view of marriage, and you start pulling out the fact that there is no absolute truth, the, your foundation, your very Bible begins to resemble a block of Swiss cheese. So it's so many holes, then you might as well just throw it out. And, this, and Satan knows where our foundation is. Look at his attacks at the church at large. Creation. Pulling that out, putting evolution is. That quote that I started with, that's what's being preached in our churches today. All right? The pulling out of genders and muddling those waters, marriage, divorce in an evangelical church, it's astounding. Satan is attacking the very foundations of Genesis because he knows if you attack, attack the foundations and destroy the foundations, the church is left with nothing else. And without sin, without Genesis, and without the fall, we would have no need for Jesus. Genesis is the foundation of all that we are. We're going to look at the flood, and we're going to look at the gospel here this morning. Beginning with the flood, a few questions about the flood. This is not an exhaustive list, but where did the water come from? Where did the water go? And also the whole debate on, was it a global flood or a local flood? Let's look into that. And finally, uh, some evidences for a global flood. Genesis 7, 11, and 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were open, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Where did the water come from? Well, it came from the fountains of the deep, and it came from the windows of heaven. Now, the windows of heaven has been a term that has um, caused a lot of questions in the society around us, in the Christian society, I'm saying. And I'm just curious, has anyone ever heard of the canopy model? Has anyone ever heard of, or about a canopy over the earth? So that's been proclaimed by a lot of creationists over the years. And the idea comes actually from the text, okay? It's looking at the text of Genesis, and it's interpreting it, all right? So... This is where, where it comes from. So Genesis 1, 6 and 7, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. All right, that's the idea. All right? So that there is a firmament, that there's this water above and a water beneath. And it's, a, and it's an attempt to explain how we get 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Now, there is some issues with the whole canopy model, and we're not going to look at them all, but first of all, if you have a canopy of water around the earth, whether that be a liquid, whether it be an ice, 
whether it be a vapor as a gas. There's some big scientific issues and also some biblical issues, beginning with the stars. All right? If there's a, a canopy around the earth, you, know, you can't see the stars. And we know that God created the stars, and they're to be seen. There's also the issue of temperature. If you have a whole earth covered in a vapor, the sun's going to heat that vapor, and therefore it's going to heat the earth well beyond what's capable of human life. So there's, there's a few issues, but I'm just simply pointing out to you that the canopy model was an interpretation of Scripture set forth to try to answer where all this rain came from. And the original question of where did all the water come from is because people look at the mountains around us like Mount Everest and others and say, look, if you're saying that there needs to be a flood to cover the entire earth, 15 cubits deep, that's a lot of water. And it's, it is. It's true. It is. But the misconception is that the mountains that we see today are the same mountains that Noah saw. When the re result is the mountains that were formed came apart because of the flood. So if you would lower all the mountains and raise up all the valleys so the earth is basically level, there's currently enough water to cover the earth 1.6 miles deep in water. And we only, the flood only needed to cover the current mountains during the flood with 15 cubits, or roughly 23 to 25 feet of water. But that's where this question comes from, and that of uh, looking at the mountains and saying, look, they need to cover. But the geography of pre-flood versus the geography that we see today are vastly different. Let's turn to Genesis 8. I want to read the first five verses there. Genesis chapter 8. The first five verse. We're jumping in here at the end of the flood. All right? So Genesis 8, verse 1. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged or resided. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days was the water abated, or resided. Verse 4, And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the mountains, the tops of the mountains seen. That black triangle on the screen is about where the mountains of Ararat um, are. They're on the eastern edge of Turkey. And that, those gray lines is the whole mountain range. So Mount Everest would be in Nepal, north of India, um, in that same mountain range. And there's an interesting uh, psalm, Psalm 104, that I would highly recommend you read it sometime. It's a beautiful view of creation, flood, and then post-flood going throughout the, out the chapter. And we're going to pull out a few verses here. I'm going to read it in the ESV from Psalms 104. The psalmist says, You covered it with the deep as with a garment. And the water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled, at the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they might not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. Somewhere between the 40 days of, of continual and 40 nights of rain, and the 150th day when the ark rested, the waters were at their peak height. And then the mountains came up, they were formed, they were pushed forth by plate tectonics and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to go into that this morning. So the point that the ark rested on the 150th day, we see there in Genesis chapter 8. So we have all this water. It's covering the earth. Where did it go? Well, a lot of that water we're seeing today. It's in oceans. It's in rivers. It's in the lakes that we see. Some of it 
went down into the earth. We see springs today. That's, that's a result of the flood. But again, the geography of post-flood is very different than the geography pre-flood. All right? 95% of all fossils that we see are shallow marine life fossils. So it points to the fact that the pre-flood oceans were very shallow. And we know today that after the flood, those oceans are extremely deep. So where did the water come from? Where did it go? Now this whole debate is very interesting to me. And the reason that we're even having this debate on a local versus global flood is because people are taking a look at Genesis 6 through 9. They're taking a look at the believed assumptions of evolutionists and the millions of years, and they're trying to merge them. All right, And so they come up with this idea of a local flood. The, the idea of the millions of years comes from the fact that we look at the rock layers around us and we say, look, those rocks were laid down over time in millions of years. A global flood, if that were true, would disrupt those rock layers. And that's where this whole idea of, well, maybe it was a local flood. But I want us to read Genesis 7, 17 through 23. And I want you to think that if this sounds like a local flood or sounds like a global flood. You're with me in Genesis 7, verse 17. We're reading to the end of the chapter. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lifted up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heavens, and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained, and they that were with him in the ark. Does that sound like a local flood to you? Like, like we read about in the newspapers today? Let's look at some of the issues of a local flood. Beginning with, why the ark? Couldn't God have just told Noah, hey, there's going to be a flood here. Let's just you know, move out of here for a little bit. Go over the next mountain range. You'll be safe. I'm going to wipe that valley out. Question remains, did God fail? He said, I will destroy every task. If Noah could have escaped over the mountain range, so could all the wicked people. Or if they were caught in the flood, they could have just swam to the side and survived. Why were birds on the ark? Couldn't they just fly to safety if this was only a local flood? What about animals? You know, if they were destroyed, well, there's other animals around. You know, just use those animals to replenish the animal kingdom. Why did Noah remain on the ark for seven months after it came to rest? A local flood doesn't take that long to dry up. And the same idea, why would a flood last for over a year if it's only a local flood? How could the ark have landed in the mountains of Ararat, far upstream in the mountains, if it was a local valley river flood, which would have taken the ark downstream? But I believe all those, and those are valid points, but I believe the final issue on this whole idea of a local flood versus global flood comes in Genesis 9. And we're familiar with this rainbow promise, but let's read it here again. Genesis 9, 11, 12, and 13, God says to Noah, And I will establish my covenant with you. 
Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. So if Noah's flood was a local flood, my question is, did God break his promise? Because I know for a fact that there are billions of dollars of damages done by floods every year. Lives are taken every year by local floods. Did God break his promise? I don't believe so. And I believe that that alone rules out the idea of a local flood. But moving on, looking at some of the geological evidence. Geological is a big word, simply meaning study of the rocks and, what, and the physical earth around us. Now, I want to make this very clear again. The Bible does not need science to defend it. The Bible is clear. That is truth. But something really neat happens when modern scientists, through extensive research and studying, find and conclude the very same thing the Bible has been saying for thousands of years. That is very cool. And the Bible truths are manifested over and over again as this happens. And there's other illustrations of this too. But we're going to look at fossils, we're going to look at rock layers, we're going to look at a lack of erosion. Fossils give us a very unique view of the past, of history, and what it may have hold for us. And although rock is cold and hard and unmoving, it provides us with keys to understanding the past. The fossil record, a fossil is formed when an animal dies, covered up with sand, with mud, with clay, whatever. And then as that hardens, dissolved minerals come into that animal, usually from quartz, and the fossil is formed. It's preserved. It's a very simplified version of what is happening, but that's what happens. The evolutionists would say that an animal dies, and then it's slowly covered up with dirt over time. Now, Kerbin, I've seen some of your dead cows in the back of your field over the time, and I know what happens to a dead animal when it is left to the elements. There are scavengers. There is, it goes away. It it decays. And that's why I believe a fossil, and we're looking at a few fossils that need to be rapidly covered with sand or dirt, like I said. All right, let's look at a few fossils. Jellyfish. Now, I've caught a few jellyfish in a net, and when you take them out of the water, they are, they're nothing. They're a blob of soft tissue. There's no bones there. When a jellyfish dies and it's exposed on the sand, per se, the sun is going to destroy that jellyfish in a matter of minutes, all right? So the fact that we have a jellyfish fossil tells us that that jellyfish was preserved very, very quickly, not over time. The other one is leaves, and you might not think of this as a uh, unique fossil, but we're familiar with leaves. This is the end of October. This is peak of fall. When a leaf falls, what does it look like? It's dead. It's curled all up. It's not going to make a very good fossil. To make a leaf fossil, the leaf needs to be alive and needs to be wet. If a leaf is dead or dry, it curls up. So for a leaf to be fossilized, it needs to be broken off the tree, it needs to be submerged, it needs to be wet, and then it's covered, the same way an animal would be, and you get a fossil. And probably my all-time favorite fossil picture is that one right there. One fish enjoying its supper, the other fish is being terminated, and yet they're frozen in history. The fish still has its mouth open. You're telling me that happened over time? No, that was preserved very 
very quickly. And I think it just points to the fact that a global flood with a mass of mud and sand, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cover some animals really, really quickly. Let's talk about some rock layers. The evolutionist theory would, would hold that sediment, rock, sand, mud, etc., is laid down over millions of years, and then the next rock layer is laid down with millions of years, etc., etc., till we see what we see in the Grand Canyon and other places. However, can hard rock bend without breaking? The left and the right picture are taken from portions of the Grand Canyon. The center one is from Ireland. And those rocks are being bent, uh, the left one especially, at a 90-degree angle with very little breaking or cracking. Hard rock, in my limited experience, does not bend. I have felt my dad remove some rock, and it does not bend. It has to be removed with force. All right? What this tells us, I believe, is that, again, a global flood is going to lay down a lot of dirt quickly. Before that dirt has time to become rock, something happens. A mountain's formed, an earthquake happens, and that rock is like children's Play-Doh. It's able to move. It's folded into what you see here. If you're driving along the highway and you look where, mount, where roads were cut out, you can all often see this in the cutout of, of, of the rock. Rocks folded, bent, deformed, not what you would ex- expect to find. Well, weathering and erosion, we know what rock looks like when it's left to the elements. The left pictures there are erosion done by wind, blowing sand and uh, gravel, etc., to, to destroy those rocks. The top right picture would be a chemical erosion, whether it be acid, rain, etc., But if you're proposing that rocks are laid down over millions of years and there's time in between each layer, then I would expect to see erosion on those layers. Rock is eroded. It's weathered. But yet that's not what we see. This is taken from the Grand Canyon. And this this layer is a different rock than this layer. You can see this is a shale type. This is more of a sedimentary rock, like a sand or a clay mixture. And right in between, a knife edge a clean line it goes right in between those two rock layers. And that's seen other places too. With no evidence of millions of years of exposure to the elements. That's enough. We're going to move on now, but that's the flood. Where did the water come from? Where did it go? Global or local flood? And then some geological evidence for a global flood. I believe one of the most mocked, one of the most ridiculed, one of the most scoffed at stories or boats in all of history, I believe, is the ark. And I think that that's a fair statement. And the, what has been taken from a biblical truth has been reduced to a children's story. And the ark that we are more familiar with seeing is that one versus the first one I showed you. A mocking of the truth, I feel. And it just further reduces the magnitude and the potential impact that Noah's Ark could hold in our minds. It reduces it to something much, much smaller. And I believe it's also used by scoffers to ridicule. Well, how could, how could that Ark hold that many animals? We're going to look at the Ark that Noah built. 
its size, its shape, and some of the features. First of all, let's look at the blueprint that God gave Noah to build this ship. Genesis 6, three verses here, 14, 15, 16. God told Noah, make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubic shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third story shalt thou make of it. I don't know about you, but I think I need a little more than three verses to tell me how to build a ship. And for all we know, God may have given Noah some more detailed instructions. But that's what's recorded. We know that it was made of gopher wood. We know know that Noah put pitch on the inside and he put pitch on the outside to help waterproof it. All right, we know the size. It was 300 cubits long. It was 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. And a few other features that we note there, we see that there was rooms in the ark, there was a window, a door, and three layers, and that is all we know for a fact. If we're going to talk about the size of the ark, we need to talk about what a cubit is. A cubit is measured from the tip of your finger to your elbow. So I, I grabbed my tape measure at home, and I figured out that my cubit's about 19 inches. I also figured out that my wife's about 15 inches. Now, if we're going to build an ark, we're going to have a problem because my ark is going to be substantially bigger than her ark. So what, what cubit was used? The question is, how big was Noah's arm, I guess? And while we don't know this for sure, Answers in Genesis did a lot of research, and the, the cubit that they used is 20 and a quarter inches, and which would make the ark to be about 510 feet long, about 51 feet high, and 85 feet long. So that is the the cubit that they used to build the Ark Encounter. Now, on paper, that just sounds like a bunch of big numbers, and I understand that. So let's try to visualize this a little bit more, how truly immense this structure was. The Santa Maria was one of the ships that Columbus would have uh, sailed on when he sailed the ocean blue. The Wyoming is one of the biggest wooden ships ever recorded using the technology of the 1800s. The Titanic we're familiar with, and Queen Mary II is a cruise ship. But those two were, of course, made of steel. The length of the ark was approximately three space shuttles lined up, about the height of a four-story house, and about as wide as an adult blue whale. But that is about all we know as far as the size. Now, the shape, we know even less about the shape. We're not told anything. Let's make a few observations about boats in general. One, a boat driven incorrectly in waves is very dangerous. And I've been at the pilot of a boat, and I've gotten my passengers very, very wet by taking a wave incorrectly. All right? So we can make that assumption or that observation. Two, a global flood is not going to be a float in the farmer's pond by your house. It's going to be a pretty tumultuous event. Three, we know God made wind pass over the waters. That's recorded in Genesis 8. And four, we also know the ark moved on the waters. And so from that, we're going to gain a few observations. Beginning with the front of the ship, this structure here. You can think of that working the same way that a weather vane would work. If a boat is floating and it's blown in the wind, it's going to blow the same way the the waves are blowing. 
all right? And the waves are going to crash on the side of that boat, and that's very, very dangerous. That structure up front is going to help steer that boat into the wind and make it a lot safer to weather those waves. And then in the rear, you'll see this structure here. Think of that as a fixed rudder, also helping to steer that boat to keep it going into the wind. We don't know. There's over years, people picture the, picture the ark as a big box or a rectangle, but no one really knows, but that's just a few observations uh, that, we, that we can make from boats in general. Some of the features of the ark, we know the wood was used, was gopher wood. And the question remains, is that a type of tree? Because we don't have gopher wood trees anymore in, that, in any area of the world. And so it's thought of that possibly that's talking about a, a preservation type. Today, if you come to, to A.B. Martin and ask for treated lumber, I'm going to sell you yellow pine. It's a species of wood, and it's been pressure treated with a chemical. We call it treated lumber. Was gopher wood the same thing? Possibly. The next question is, is the window. And this has drawn a lot of um, assumption over the years. But the window that's being used to describe in Genesis 6 is the way the English interprets that Hebrew word. It actually means noon or midday. And so it would actually be very more similar to what a ridge vent is on most of our house roofs. Runs the continuous length. We know that it was a cubic above. You see that there. A few other notes about the window. All right, we know that the raven and the dove were sent out of the window. But when Noah went to look at the dry art, the dry earth, what did he use? He didn't look out the window. He removed the covering to look at the earth. And so there's a picture of what that covering could have looked like. Next, there's a door, a singular door. Where was this door located? It was in the side of the ship, of the ark. We know there was three stories. There's a lower deck. And so if we're talking about a lower deck, that means the door's probably not in that lower deck. We know there's a third story. So it's probably in the second story of the ark. A few other features. We know there was three levels in the ark. And we also know there was rooms in the ark. It was not mass chaos on this boat. There was order. And also you can see a little bit better blown up picture there of what that vent window and covering maybe looked like. We're not told much. We have three verses recorded of what that ship, how big it was, what it looked like, and some features of it. But these are some observations that we can make. But I believe the ark is so much more than just a story. I believe it's one of the most vivid illustrations of the gospel message that we have. And just like the rest of the New Testament, that ark is pointing forward to something much, much greater than itself. We know it before the, before the flood, times were very, very evil. God looked down, and he was appalled at what he saw. So times were evil. I believe times are evil today. We'd all agree with that. But Romans 3, we all know, for all have sinned. All have sinned. The earth is very wicked. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So I believe the times were wicked in Noah's time, and they're wicked now as well. Let's look a little closer at the door and also the ark and its relation. Jesus said 
In John 10, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And praise God, that door is still open today. Jesus elaborates further on himself. He said in John 14 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. When Noah went, wanted to go into that ark, there was one way in. He didn't climb in the window. He didn't take off the covering to get in. He went through the one and only door. And that's how him and his family were saved. And Jesus also provided the singular way through which we can receive our salvation as well. The ark, saved by grace through faith. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When he looked down and the Lord saw the wickedness that was around him, but he saw Noah, and Noah found grace. But Noah had to enter that ark through the door by faith. That was the only way that he would be saved from destruction. He followed God's plan, and he was obedient to it. No matter, what the, no matter how much he was ridiculed, no matter how much he was scoffed, no matter how much he questioned the blueprints of the ark, no matter how much he questioned the need for the ark, he followed it. And he was not saved by building that ark. He was saved by, through faith, entering the door of that ark. That is how he was saved. And you know what? We're saved the same way. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a free gift. We can't earn our salvation. Noah couldn't earn his salvation. We need to walk through the door, Jesus Christ, through faith to receive our salvation. We need to recognize our need for a Savior, and we need to confess with our mouth. We need to believe in it with our heart. And that is what we are saved, through faith. God provided the ark as a method to save humanity from the destruction of the global flood. And God also provided a way of salvation through which we, through one door, that is Jesus Christ, can be saved today. And the message and the promise of the ark and that open door still true today. What was God's involvement in all of this? So we know he gave Noah the blueprints. And I was pondering Genesis 7, verse 16, the end of the verse where it says, the Lord shut him in. So Noah... The animals, his family, they're all in the ark. But Noah didn't close that door. God did. And I came across this, this quote, also from Answers in Genesis, and they asked the same question. What is significant about God shutting the door of the ark? It provides a wonderful demonstration of the twin truths of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty that we see all throughout Scripture. People mock and ridicule to say, how could a good God destroy all those innocent people? How could a kind God send anyone to hell? But God gave us a free choice. He said, man, there it is. There's your free choice. Do with it what you want. But on the other hand is God. He is sovereign. He is just. He is perfect in all that he does. And that moment when God shut that door, there's a beautiful blending of those two truths. Where Noah and his family, by faith, they chose to enter that ark. And the rest chose not to. But God shut that door and God's going to shut that door again sometime. I wanted us to look this morning afresh on Noah's flood. I wanted us to see the truths. I wanted to see the promises so that our faith can be strengthened. My prayer is that, I, that that happened. But church, we cannot question the authority of the word. 
There is in no way any time where modern science can be held in a higher regard than the Bible that you hold in your laps today. And the question remains, are you going to stand on the word and proclaim truth just like Noah did? No matter the ridicule, no matter the mocking, no matter the scorning we receive from the modern scientific community, will you stand on Genesis 6 through 9 and proclaim truth? We cannot mix evolution and Genesis or any of the Bible. It does not work. The facts remain. The flood was a real event. The ark was a real boat. And Noah and his family were real people. And the message of salvation, the message of hope, still resonates today and still can be proclaimed. Let's pray. Thank you for the truths of your word. Thank you for giving us your word, inspired and absolute truth. And Lord, thank you for Noah, for his faithfulness, for his obedience to the crazy plan that you gave him and his family. But Lord, that ark points to something much, much greater than itself, and that points to the salvation through Jesus Christ that is available to all who will confess and believe. And Lord, as we go forth, may we stand upon the truths of your word and not compromise with modern scientific assumptions and proclaim the gospel of repentance and salvation that you have made available through all, through one man, and that is Jesus Christ. Dismiss us with your grace, and would you um, be with us? We go throughout the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.